last week, we took up, we had begun to take up finally the actual uh, points of Baptist distinctives rather than just I've been treating of the subject as a subject in a very broad and general way for a few lectures. And then on last week we had started to take up those particular those particular uh, distinctives. And we opened up first last week uh, that of the solidarity, the supremacy of the scripture. And we said that that was foundational, very foundational, and uh, significant to all the rest of our distinctives put together. Uh, I gave you a quote, wonderful quote, word picture really, when uh, it was said of speaking of the scriptures. Here are waters in which an infant may wade and an elephant may swim freely. Truly, truly, it is so. Now, on last week, uh, I started the lecture with uh, taking up where Brother John had left off. Brother John had pointed out uh, in our discussion time in the first lecture how that our Baptist confession of faith is unique uh, in that it starts here where the others do not. It starts with the very opening statement of our Baptist confession declares the sole authority and unique supremacy of the scriptures. And that is a foundational doctrine for us. I took up then, and I won't cover that ground again, but I did take up this matter. I said that it was really not a distraction, but 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 a necessary relation to discuss inspiration, the inspiration of the scriptures. We are actually dealing in this class with Baptist distinctives. But this first distinctive, which is the supremacy of the scriptures in all authority, then it almost necessitates that you take up on that track the subject of divine inspiration, the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. That has to be uh, a conviction. That has to be a, a foundational thought as we stand on the scriptures alone. In the midst of our discussion on last week, and I doubt, I've never listened to it, but I doubt seriously that whatever comes from the floor can be heard on these microphones. I don't know. I doubt it. Uh, so sometimes what is said, I try, if you say something during the discussion period and I repeat it verbatim, uh, don't think that I'm just dull and dumb. 
I'm doing that oftentimes so that I can be sure it gets on this recording. I want what I heard to be said audible on the uh, sermon audio recordings. <clears throat> but Luke brought up a couple of points uh, last week in, uh, in our discussion time. And uh, I, I contacted him and asked him to please take those up again uh, in front of the microphone and maybe enlarge on them slightly. I think I gave him five minutes. No, I didn't. I gave him a little more than five minutes. But <laughs> uh, another thing that you will have to look forward to, by the way, uh, is that I've asked Brother John, I think I mentioned this, to, to bring us a a testimony. He won't be doing that this week, but week after next when we take up our lectures again, possibly then Brother John is going to bring us a, uh, a testimony from history. Uh, put a face on it, if you please. Put a face on this Baptist distinctive by sharing with us a life or one or more lives uh, of those who have paid the ultimate price for holding to this Baptist distinctive. Now, I did say to you last week, the doctrine of verbal inspiration that we hold is foundational to all evangelicals. That is, that doctrine in itself is not a Baptist distinctive. Evangelicals at large, if they are true evangelicals, hold to the verbal inspiration of the scriptures. Our distinctive is that we hold that the scriptures is, the scriptures are the only final authority in all matters of doctrine and practice. That is a Baptist distinctive. None but Baptists hold it. Uh, by whatever name, by whatever name they may be. So the couple of just having kind of recovered that ground a little bit, uh, I wanted Luke to come and uh, and share with us the thoughts that he was sharing last week. Ian is going to pass out some copies I would only ask, which I know it's a waste of time in this crowd. But I am going to ask you to try to refrain from reading them until we get to them. Knowing that you will not be able to do that, I'm going to ask you to anyway. <clears throat> they are not copies of everything I intend to quote, but the main ones, and I did that because, because it is it's so important Sometimes when we hear a thing, it may be difficult to follow it out. When we see it written on the page, it, it, it's, it's easier. Um, plus, it's something we can walk away with and ruminate on later. We have uh, believers, young believers, believers new to 
the doctrines of grace. We have college students who are in in their college experience daily in an apologetic arena. Some of these things will not be new to some of us. They are so incredibly important and foundational, though. Since it is just a lecture, I did not bother to put my quotes inside of my notes. I would do that if preaching so as not to cause any distraction or delay. Some of us have lost track of the number of times that we've been talking with unbelievers or even professing Christians and have given Scripture as support for this or that view only to get some version of this response. Oh, but the Bible is a book written by men. Or the Bible has errors in it, though. So how can it be the Word of God and be totally accurate? The point is simply this. As the Bible is the foundation of every legitimate Christian belief, so it is also the first point of attack against Christianity. And as Baptists are self-proclaimed people first of the Word of God, then I think it behooves us first to settle in our own hearts the matter of the authority of the Bible before we even bother to discuss the Bible's claims in other areas of doctrine and practice. Does the Bible have final authority in every single aspect of thought and deed? Like our confession says. Why? Because it is the inspired word of God. But if that is true, how do you know that? Is it because as the inspired words of God, it must be totally trustworthy and accurate? But how can you prove that? These are fair questions. And if you live long enough as a professing Christian, they're going to be put to you. And unfortunately, the church has done such a disservice to so many believers it has not equipped them often to answer those questions, and it is quite alarming and disconcerting, especially for young believers. It came to light in the last class that the answers to these and related questions are addressed by Mr. Crowell, Crowell in Church Members' Manual, but I think in a fundamentally flawed, albeit well-intentioned way. And as mentioned in the last class, this well-intentioned but flawed approach to supporting the doctrine of the scriptures is not a Baptist tradition only. It is a Christian tradition across the denominations, unfortunately. In certain matters where large basic assumptions in doctrine or Christian philosophy are being taught or defended, many of our most respected Orthodox forefathers have displayed what I think is a confusing amount of of intellectual sloth or logical blunder. I said many, but I did not say all. More on that shortly. But that does not need to shake our confidence or frighten us away from an honest assessment of things. As no individual is perfect, so no denomination is made up of flawless men and women. Truth is not a work in progress. But our understanding and expression of truth is a process. As we noted last class, no one generation has ever arrived 
at all possible illumination in all truth. Moreover, it will always be the case that great, righteous, and very intelligent men will have blind spots nonetheless, which may, to keep us humble, even be exposed sometimes by our greatest enemies or even children among our camps. What's more, the church continues to take steps from time to time toward a fuller understanding and clearer manner of expressing various truths of God. I would ask some of you to hold your rotten tomatoes. Please do not throw them. But I think that while the distribution of this light may be more or less depending on the spiritual decline of a particular age, I don't personally believe that the church was basically daft until the Reformation and now will never advance beyond what John Owen learned. I don't find that to be consistent with the divine habit of progression in revelation and illumination that one sees from creation till now. Now, you may have already thought of an objection to this. I may have already thought of an answer to your objection, but we can save that till the Q&A. Here's the thing about which I believe Baptists need to be honest. There is no proof of the inspiration and thus the authority and trustworthiness of the scriptures. Let me clarify a proof, and I put that in quotes, is supposed to be something that can equally convince a believer and unbeliever alike and not be guilty of depending on any assumptions about life or truth or reason that are not equally shared by all men of normal intellectual capacity. There is no such thing. I mean by this that there is no argument from reason or argument from historical or literary evidences or otherwise that can begin somewhere outside of the claims of the Bible and arrive at, quote, conclusive proof that the Bible is what it says it is. The pastor's choice of words in our Last class at the close of it, I think, are wise evidences, he called them. There are many evidences of the divine nature and supernatural effects of the scriptures, but there are no proofs as we normally use that word. This is a critical distinction, but one that has been either totally misunderstood or sadly obscured by some great men in the church. If the claims of the Bible are true, if the claims of the Bible are true, then logically it cannot be tested by a reasoned argument outside of itself to prove its claims. No more than we can reason to the existence of God from some starting point outside of Himself. In children's terms, if something is above everything else, then nothing else can go above it. If the Bible is what it claims to be and its claims about God are in fact true, then the reason of man is not only not allowed, but is not capable of starting at some point above 
or outside of God or the Bible to prove the truth of either. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Romans 9.20 Can we that are created possibly hope to take something else that is created, such as our reasons or our experiences or our physical evidences and provide proofs for the existence or validity of our Creator before or in order to believe them? If God and the Bible are what they claim to be, then reason itself is a thing formed by God and is in no position to require a proof for God or His Word. Without Him and outside of the light of His Word, reason cannot even exist or function properly. Understood this way, why would we endeavor to craft proofs of the Scripture's inspiration or authority? Wouldn't we honor Christ more to simply take for granted the claims of the Word about itself and then enjoy the comfort and the reassurance that comes with the many evidences we encounter that it is in fact what it claims to be? I'll borrow again, especially for those who weren't here, if I may, a quote from the exposition of the 1689 Confession that was used last class. Quote, So are the divines guilty here, in chapter 1 of our Confession on the Scriptures, of begging the question. Are they guilty of circular reasoning, which says that such and such is true about God because God's Word says so, and the Word is His Word because it says so? Yes, they are guilty of that. And in doing so, they fulfill the requirements of rational expression about any ultimate authority. It is actually irrational to attempt to not reason in this circular way. It is irrational because it is in fact impossible for anyone to urge anything about ultimate truths or ultimate realities without assuming first some presupposition or sets of presuppositions that together form their ultimate authority for all belief and action. Everyone has an ultimate authority, consciously or unconsciously in operation. And that they necessarily begin and end with. Everyone you will ever encounter, you college students remember this, I don't care how vocal they are as an unbeliever or a hater of Christianity and what they have to say about you arguing in a circle, everyone you meet argues in a circle. You have to because everyone has an ultimate starting point. They start there and they will come back around to it eventually. It is irrational not to argue in that sense, in a circular fashion. Because for humans, any other method of argumentation is impossible. The scriptures alone, then, are as far back as any confession can go in its treatment of scripture. The Bible, and so the God of the Bible, are and must be self-attesting 
or the God of the Bible is not the God that the Bible claims he is. To attempt to begin at any other point in our search of truth is to admit validity in the unbeliever's claim that the scriptures are insufficient. To set this point out a bit more clearly, and this is still the quote from the exposition on the confession, I would give you pieces of Dr. Bonson's fantastic words here when he says all argument chains must come to an end somewhere. One's conclusions could never be demonstrated if they were dependent upon an infinite regress of argumentative justifications. For under those circumstances, the demonstration could never be completed. And an incomplete demonstration demonstrates nothing at all. Eventually, all argumentation terminates in some primitive starting point, a view or a premise held as unquestionable. In the nature of the case, these assumptions are held to be self-evidencing. The final standard by which all religious claims are to be tried is the apostolic teaching, which means that it is itself tried by nothing more ultimate. There is no higher authority than God's own self-evidencing word. Indeed, it is the case, as many will be quick to point out, that this method of apologetics assumes the truth of Scripture in order to argue for the truth of Scripture. But, says Dr. Bonson, such is unavoidable when ultimate truths are being debated. However, this is not damaging. For it is not a flat circle in which one reasons, example, the Bible is true because the Bible is true. Rather, the Christian simply recognizes that the ultimate truth is such that it cannot be argued independently of the preconditions in it. One must presuppose the truth of God's revelation in order to reason at all, even when the reasoning is about God's revelation. The fact that the apologist or the Christian presupposes the word of God in order to carry on a discussion or debate about the veracity of that word does not nullify his argument, but rather illustrates it. That's fantastic. That's very helpful. Thank you again, Dr. Bonson. Perhaps some examples then, end quote from that exposition, by the way, Perhaps some examples, good and bad, will bolster the clarity and therefore the confidence of young Baptists in the matter of the Scripture. Dr. John Gill is in every way a giant in Baptist history and precious in my library. Unfortunately, however, he falls in step with the classical orthodox method in his chapter on the scriptures when he offers this. Having premised these things, I now proceed to prove the claim of the scriptures to a divine authority which may be drawn from the following things. Whereupon he sets about to list those things traditionally listed. Number one, the subject matter of them. The things contained are pure and holy. There are some things recorded in Scripture we couldn't know. The style and the manner. Another argument may be taken from the nature of the men who wrote it. 
another argument from the wonderful effects, and so on and so forth, classical in its approach. Unfortunate, however, that he should preface them as proofs of the claims of Scripture to divine authority. Dag, and you should have a quote on this, Dag in his Manual of Theology, page 27, seems to get closer to where we ought to be in his section on the origin of the Bible when he says, bottom of the page, it may perhaps be objected to the use of these quotations that we permit the Bible to speak for itself, but this is no unprecedented procedure. If a stranger were passing through our neighborhood and we were desirous to know whence he came, it would not be unnatural to propose the inquiry to the man himself. If there were about him marks of honesty and simplicity of character, you can already begin to see the logical blunders, and if after our most careful investigations it should appear that he has no evil design to accomplish and no interest to promote by deceiving us, we should rely on the information we derive from him. Such a stranger is the Bible, and why may we not rely on its testimony concerning itself? But careful reflection will reveal that his analogy unwittingly exalts the will of man and not the authority of God. In the case of the stranger, we do allow them to speak for themselves. But meanwhile, we always reserve the right to accept what they say as true or false or suspect based upon our judgment of what we see and hear. But man does not have that liberty when handling God and his word. Moreover, the analogy fails entirely in the comparison between a stranger assumed to be at least equal with other men and God who is in no way equal to us. This is a critical failure in that what God uh, makes God so unlike us is the very thing that gives him absolute rights to our unquestioned allegiance. You may say, well, sure, but in Dag's analogy, it is not God at issue, but the Bible. Yes, but the Bible is assumed to be like a stranger, a thing unto itself. But the Bible is not a thing unto itself. It is the voice of God. It cannot be questioned without questioning God himself. In order for Dag's analogy to work, we have to assume an unscriptural disconnect between the Bible as a book and God as the author of it. Well, Dag goes on then in classical fashion from there on to say... The truth that the Bible is from God is not only testified, testified, interesting, he didn't say proved, he said testified by the inspired men who wrote it, but it is established by many other decisive proofs, some of which we will proceed to consider, and then he gives many of the typical classical so-called proofs. It's ironic then on page 41, which you may not have, he closes with this excellent statement. The authority of the Bible is independent. Yes, indeed it is. I would argue even from these proofs. 
It was not conferred on it by the inspired men who wrote it, nor does it derive any from the persons who have transmitted it to us. The purest church on earth cannot invest it with authority. Much less can the corrupt church of Rome. The inspired writers referred the authority of what they wrote to God and here it must rest. Why Brother Dag did not start there, I don't know. Brother Crowell, I hope you have your book. If you don't, you'll just have to listen. The church member's manual. Brother Crowell is less helpful to our cause, I think, in the handling of this matter. Page 120, beginning his section on the scriptures, he says this. See if you can follow the P now. The truth of a book cannot prove its inspiration, yet it must be proved to be true. And the authentic production of its professed writer before it can be proved to be inspired. The proper method to arrive at the proof of the inspiration of the scriptures, therefore, is first to seek for the proof that they are authentic and true. If you can follow the logical P, it goes like this. A book's truth cannot prove its inspiration. So we will establish the truth and authenticity of this book to prove its inspiration. If that's confusing to you, it is thoroughly confusing to me. Then we are referred again to various classical arguments to, quote, prove the truth and authenticity of the Bible I don't know why when he said himself that the truth of a book cannot prove its inspiration. But then we are told to assess these proofs in order to establish the truth and authenticity of the Bible. And we are directed to look for marks, he calls them, that have, quote, the unanimous confidence of mankind. Oh, goodness gracious. Jack Seaton once said that so many men have become drunkards off of Timothy's stomach. Have a little wine. I think it's true, too, that so many Christians have become bad defenders of the faith off of this one expression, unanimous confidence of mankind. In section 6 on page 125, which you should have copied, one bold assertion arrested my attention. As a specimen of the sort of defense of vital doctrines that is very unbecoming of believers, albeit traditionally employed by them, arguing in the classical fashion from the sinless character of Christ as, quote, proof of the credibility of the scriptures, he says, quote, it is impossible for imperfect men to invent a perfect character. The conclusion we are supposed to draw, apparently, is that the scriptures are therefore perfect and must furthermore be of divine origin. But it must not have occurred to Brother Kroll that if imperfect men cannot create or imagine a perfect character, neither are they capable of truly recognizing one either. 
So that the presence of Christ in the Bible would be no help to mankind to recognize the divinity of the Scriptures. Moreover, it should be readily apparent to Mr. Kroll that men are, in fact, able to imagine all sorts of perfect things on a daily basis, even though they are themselves imperfect. This is the obvious result of being creations of a perfect God. So aside from just being wrong, then, Mr. Kroll here does not do Baptist a service in the defense of the truth. At long last, in his point number nine, page 126, he says, finally, indeed, finally, the scriptures, whose authenticity and truth are sustained by the most triumphant proofs, declare that they are divinely inspired. Oh yeah, this is what the Bible says about itself. Declare that they are divinely inspired and should be received as the unmingled, infallible, and perfect words of God. Sadly, his conclusion is all too common among Orthodox men of many persuasions. And just to show that this is not a Baptist problem only, but a very common problem, Christian blind spot, I will throw in the testimony of a giant among the Swiss Reformed, Francois Samuel Robert Louis Gossin, God breathed the divine inspiration of the Bible. This is a superb book on the subject. It is my favorite ever, in fact. After wonderfully dismissing many false claims for establishing the authority of the Bible, and you have this copy also, I believe, such as the Catholic Church makes in the section entitled Didactic Abstract of the Doctrine of Divine Inspiration. He asked this, page 133, how is their inspiration established? Solely by the Scriptures. I wish he'd stopped there. But unfortunately, he goes on with this. Is such an argument rational? Does it not involve a begging of the question and the proving of inspiration by inspiration? There would be a begging of the question here if in order to prove that the scriptures are inspired, we should invoke their testimony while assuming them to be inspired. I don't understand why that's a problem. But we are far from adopting this process Unfortunately, first of all, the Bible is viewed solely in the light of an historical document, deserving our respect from its authenticity and by means of which one may know the doctrine of Jesus Christ nearly as one would learn that of Socrates from the books of Plato or that of Leibniz or Leibniz from the writings of Wolfe. Now, this document declares to us in all its pages that the whole system of the religion which it teaches is founded on the grand fact of a miraculous intervention of God and the revelation of its history and its doctrines. The learned Michaelis, it's a German theologian, he goes on to say himself declares that the inspiration, oh, you got to follow the P again, the inspiration 
of the apostolic writings necessarily results from their authenticity. There is no other alternative, says he, if what they relate is true, they are inspired. If they were not inspired, they would not be sincere. But they are sincere, therefore they are inspired. <laughs> How such a brilliant man could have such a glaring blind spot, I can only attribute to the clay feet disease that we all have. From a thinking unbeliever's viewpoint, from a thinking, un and let us never, you young people, <laughs> never assume that because you have God's system of thought that you're going to bulldoze over everybody you meet. This world is full of unbelievers who are sharp thinkers and they will cut your feet out from under you. From a thinking unbeliever's viewpoint, there is a mix-match basket of logical blunders here. Deserving our respect from authenticity? We won't even go into that. And as to Michaelis's argument, it is, in fact, begging the question, just not in the way that Gossine mentions. We must see that to argue in this way is to assume, to take for granted, to presuppose that we are accurate judges on our own apart from Scripture, to determine what is sincere and what is not in order to establish what we have called true. Michaelis begs the question in a sense because he started with the assumption that sincerity was enough to determine inspiration in order to use sincerity to demonstrate that the scriptures are inspired. His argument has simply moved the test of inspiration from truth to sincerity. The argument goes like this. If they are sincere, they are inspired. They are sincere, therefore they are inspired. Any half-thinking unbeliever could easily object by what measure are you testing sincerity? And the whole thing falls apart. The flaw is apparent. Moreover, we cannot disagree with the first argument that if what they relate is true, they are inspired. But this argument does nothing to establish that what they relate is in fact true. And that's the whole point. The issue is whether the Bible is the inspired Word of God and as such is totally true and authoritative in all of life. But how does one prove that? Without trying to start from outside of the Bible and argue up to the Bible. If the Bible is what it says it is, then not only is it impossible to argue up to the Bible, from outside of the Bible, it is positively offensive to Christ. Well, to reiterate that I am not just picking on Baptist, listen to the Presbyterian, Dr. Robert Raymond, in his excellent work, A New Systematic Theology of the Christian Faith. And rightly, 
he begins, as some do not, unfortunately, with the fact of divine revelation. Where else would you begin? And in that section, he says this. Consequently, to regard the Bible as only a generally reliable library of ancient documents composed by human authors, as even some evangelicals are willing for the unbeliever to do, at least at first, as part of their apologetic strategy, is to overlook the most fundamental fact about the Bible and the Bible's major claim about itself. And then he has this footnote, see B.B. Warfield, see John Wark Montgomery, see R.C. Sproul, John Gerstner, Arthur Lindsley, etc., etc., etc. And he concludes the footnote with this. But Christians should not tell unbelievers that they may presuppose less than the whole truth about the Bible. And that's the point I am belaboring. When you start with these proofs, you have the cart before the horse and you are telling your own heart and the world it is okay to start somewhere besides where the Bible starts. As the self-attesting, self-declaring, inerrant, authoritative word of God. My old logic and philosophy professor related one time how in debates and banter with R.C. Sproul, <clears throat> Dr. Bonson accused him and other Christian thinkers of the classical sort of propping up a ladder of argument on evidences to climb to the platform of the Bible's claim to being the self-attesting and authoritative word of God, only to reach down and kick away the ladder as though it never existed in order to hold mankind to the demands of Scripture. Sola Scriptura, they say, after we get you to that point with these outside evidences. No. This is exactly, however, what so many of our brethren are guilty of doing. We want to use arguments from history, literary critique, traditions, consent of nations, positive influences, etc., etc., to prop up the claim that the Bible's truthfulness is not to be questioned and its authority in all of life never to be rejected. This is disingenuous. Unconverted man will never, never, never be convinced with proofs that God is or that the Bible is all that it claims. No proofs will ever suffice to overcome the objections of the heart and the mind unchanged by grace. And when we pretend to be able to do so, we deny the scripture that we claim to support, which says the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither able he is not, the Greek says, because they are spiritually discerned. This is what I meant when I made the seemingly bizarre statement earlier, there is no proof of the inspiration and thus the authority and trustworthiness of the Scriptures. Of course, I don't mean to say 
that there are not a wealth of evidences and demonstrations of the divine nature of the scriptures. There are many, and they are very encouraging and interesting for a believer to examine. <clears throat> In fact, I agree with Philip Doddridge, who said that Christians, Christians should form a familiar acquaintance with the great evidences of our own common faith. But they are not, I'm saying, to be offered as our proof that the Bible is what it says it is in an effort to convince unbelieving minds or as a groundwork for defending our other doctrines. All this does is inform the unbeliever that it is okay to submit to God and His Word, or rather to submit God and His Word to a trial by human reason before accepting and submitting. We don't believe this, and so our handling of doctrine ought not to suggest that we do. If I could trouble you with one more quote that you have, I want you to see the words for yourself. Take them home, reread them. In his section, The Ultimate Starting Point, God's Word, let me read this quote. Follow with me what he's saying. The apologist must contend that the true starting point of thought cannot be other than God and His revealed Word, for no reasoning is possible apart from that ultimate authority. Here and only here does one find the genuinely unquestionable starting point. It should be clear that this is the perspective of Scripture. It is God's Word which must be our ultimate and indisputable presupposition in thought and argumentation, rather than independently supported by brute facts. Christ demonstrated that God's Word, and thus His own teaching, had highest authority in the world of thought. It was the firm starting point, self-validating foundation and final standard of the truth. As such, nothing was more ultimate than it or could call it into question. Thus Christ would never consent to put the Lord God to a test. So also Christ designated Himself as the truth. Christ and His Word stand firm as the most ultimately established, trustworthy point of truth. He alone can designate Himself the Amen and preface His pronouncements with, Amen, Amen, I say unto you. Christ and His Word are self-attestingly true. As the very standard of truth against which all other claims must be measured, Christ did not rely upon the backing or evidence of others for His teaching. He taught with self-sufficient authority. Should anyone refuse to receive His words, those very words would stand in judgment over Him. They had ultimate authority as coming from the Lord, thus not being subject to challenge. Christ declared that it would be more tolerable for Sodom than, than for that city which would not receive the apostolic proclamation, He that heareth you, heareth me. The divine word is authoritative in itself, carrying its own evidence inherently. Consequently, no man has the prerogative to call it into question. Instead, those who contend with God are required to answer. 
God's veracity is to be automatically presupposed for he speaks with unmistakable clarity. Christ disdained Christ disdained those who sought signs beyond the authority of his words. Mindful of that, Luke prefaced such an incident with the words, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Apologists should keep in mind that Christ needs not the witness and glory of man. His greatest witness comes from the Father speaking in the Scripture. The refusal of men to believe Christ's word is not attributed to a lack of factual evidence but rather to their not abiding in the self-evidencing word of God. Scripture is authoritative in itself to testify of Christ, for God's word is more sure, more sure than any eyewitness experience of the facts. If men will not submit to the self-evidencing ultimate starting point of God's word, neither will the fact of an historical resurrection convinced them. Away with all your proofs of the authenticity of the book. Who cares? The issue, the real issue, is that men will not submit to the word in their hearts. The word, not the evidences. Hence, when certain disciples were reluctant to believe the fact of Christ's resurrection, he rebuked them not for failure to attend to the experienced evidence, but for their hesitance to believe the Scriptures. Wow. In case you missed it in that extended quote, it's all about the Scriptures. Well, I am very, very pleased to announce in closing. <laughs> I am very pleased to announce again that the Baptist, despite being complicit in this tomfoolery, still can hold high their heads in this matter. And we, as a covenant body, covenanted together on the great old confession of 1689, can hold high our heads because once again, we find the writers of our confession to have been judicious and wise in their choice of words. Listen carefully as a brilliant, concise, Christ-honoring statement is made about the Scriptures that does not entangle itself with all of the proofs of classical theology. They say, chapter 1, Section 4, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. That's what evidences do for us. And we might be moved and induced by the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, 
the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable, incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. On that footing then, and I argue on that footing alone. And with the air cleared of some intellectual fog, we can explore all of our other grand doctrines, resting firmly and confidently on the Scripture. The Scripture and nothing else. We can do it with our heads held high, understanding that there is no greater argument for the authority, the inspiration, and the truth of Scripture than the argument that they themselves offer. Period. You can throw your tomatoes now or just ask questions. If you have any. I know we covered a lot. I tried to hurry. There's so much more to be said, but I hope we've at least boiled it down enough for us to get our heads around this that as we go forward in this excellent study, we can be confident in turning always back to the Scriptures for justification of what we believe. And the Scriptures on their own testimony, nothing else. We don't have to be, well, he's deceased now. I won't speak ill of the dead, but we don't have to be like the R.C. Sproles of the world and say, well, because Scripture says, and, and I've got Scripture propped up on these, these things that I've done for you to approve of. We don't have to do that. That's unnecessary. Any questions? Answers? Disagreements? Objections? All right. All right. Thank you, Luke, for doing that. Uh, The absolute authority of the scripture rests on the absolute authority of the scripture. And that will be received only by faith, not by intellectual persuasion. I, as a young believer, and this is one of the reasons we're doing, I want to do this, all of this, is because I spent so many years as a young believer uh, making terrible mistakes I used to try to argue from some of these things he's described 
And I no longer waste my time or the sinner's time with that. I had a very in-depth conversation with a sinner, another bus driver recently. And uh, she threw at me. I assume she emptied her arsenal. <laughs> throwing at me this, that, and the other uh, arguments. But she is a, uh, I suppose you would classify her as a mystic. She holds to mystical things, and she brought a whole bunch of arguments, and I made no attempt to counter any of those arguments, as I used to would have in my youth. At the conclusion of each of her presentations, I came back and repeated the same thing again. The Bible is God's Word, and you will be judged by the things written in the book. And all of these things you're bringing to me mean absolutely nothing because you will be judged by the book that I hold. And I'm not going to try to prove that to you. I'm not going to try to argue with you. That is the statement of truth. And when you die, in less than one millisecond earth time, you will know that I have told you the truth. The Bible is God's word. It will not need defense. Now, for an earnest seeker, then, as he said, many of these things that I prefer to call evidences uh, may be entertained. To great edification, but not as proofs. The only thing that will bring proof is faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not innate in the center. They cannot develop it. They cannot draw it up. It's a gift of God. God has to give it to them, and when he does, they will believe. Faith is the only Thing that will bring confidence in the scripture, in the, the veracity and, and solidarity of the scriptures. Only by faith. And it makes it much easier in answering sinners. <laughs> you don't have to take up all their arguments, you don't have to take up answering all their, their questions. You just keep going back, going back, going back to this the scripture. The scripture. You will be judged by them. And yes, it is a circular reasoning, if you want to call it that. But the reality is, it's a spiritual reality. That truth can only be known by the Word of God and that by His Spirit making application of the Word to the heart of the sinner. And when He does that, all debate will be ended. <laughs> it will be a manumission that will be a transformation from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. 